Well, hey, everybody, welcome to week six of the CSF Curriculum Podcast. I'm Brian once again here, and this week we have CJ. CJ was one of our lead people in helping us prepare for this week, which I will say this particular chapter, if you are feeling somewhat overwhelmed with this chapter and thinking, where in the world do I dive in? I have felt that more than any chapter that we've covered. Entire books have been written about Romans chapter 8, Romans 9, this whole, there's just so much in this. This is a Paul's tour de force. I mean, this is just such rich, rich, rich theological material, practical material. It's there's so much to cover that it's there's no way we'll be able to get too much done. But let's, uh, in terms of trying to cover everything, but let's just jump in. Let's hit some good points that'll hopefully help you all in your discussions in your M group as you are looking to help people to fall in love with the God of Scripture. So let's let's dive in. CJ, what do you got? Romans eight. Well, kind of sticking with the first part of this uh, chapter so far, after you know, proclaiming the gospel again, in those first few verses, uh, I'm struck most in that kind of second paragraph, verses five through eight, about how many times the mind comes up. Um, and Paul has some pretty strong language that, you know, um, what your mind is, if it's set on the flesh, um, you actually can't please God um, when you are focused on what's in the flesh and the mind comes up over and over mind set on the flesh versus mind set on what the spirit desires mind governed by the flesh is death but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace and so i think just paying attention to our minds is really important a lot of times we can pay attention to what we're doing and you know kind of who we're singing about but we don't always think about god um and i don't think we take it seriously to think about God a a lot of times and that we kind of treat our minds as this thing that's activated when we want it to activate and is off when we don't want it to be on. We turn it on when we go to class and then we turn it off when we go to home. Um, And I think Paul's saying that that's just not the case. And so I'm interested in in mining the mind and trying to figure out what am I really setting my mind on? So I like to just take a a little inventory sometimes, think, what did I Mm -hmm. think about today? Mm -hmm. What did I consume today? Um, what did I watch today? What did I scroll through today on my phone? What books did I read today? What podcast did I listen to? And then just what did I spend the day thinking about? Um, and I think that that can pay a lot of benefits in figuring out what are you, what are you focusing on? Yeah. I noticed for me, in fact, we were in New York city this summer as a family and we were back in our hotel room resting and Caleb said to me, he's like, dad, you, you play a lot of chess on your phone and nothing wrong with chess. You know, it's not like I'm, you know, in fact, I'd even told myself, well, it's, you know, it's a good mental game. I'm developing my mind uh, for other, other purposes. But when Caleb said that to me, I realized, man, my, my son who plays chess himself is challenging me that, Hey dad, you're, you're, you're spending too much time with your mind focused on some other things. Mm-hmm. And so I quit playing chess for a couple of months because I, and I noticed in, in those months, I started reading more instead of it night just sitting mm-hmm. down and to uh to to play chess in bed and Shelby would try to talk to me I'm like I'm in the middle of a game she's like well I'm praying you lose then <laughs> it was like a wonderful marriage uh, we have here fighting over chess uh, me playing chess games but but it was it was just where my mind was was focused there yeah it's amazing uh, a lot of the people that I like the voices I listen to um they'll talk about taking a fast from social media or hopping off their computers or not watching Netflix and almost every time what that ends up resulting in is them spending more time sustained reading, sustained thinking, mm-hmm. slowing down their mind and focusing their mind. Um, and it's just enjoyable to, to read books that you probably didn't have the patience to read. You're, you're probably consuming less mindless junk. Um, mm-hmm. And how much distraction really just 
you know, squeezes out the life of, of the mind here. Um, but I think kind of the, the life of the mind, the life of the spirit is one that's set on God. It's probably one that's a little bit slower and how it feels like it's racing. It's probably less distracted. It's probably more comfortable sitting down and reading a hundred page book than it is, you know, watching 50 different three minute YouTube videos. Yeah. I love that part in, in verse five, it says those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desires. Exactly what you're talking about. Those who live in accordance with the spirit have their mind set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. And I just, you know, I think a lot of times we have this, this view of desire in our culture and we think, well, whatever you desire, that that's just, it just is what it is. You can't do anything about desires. And I think what Paul, saying here is that our desires can be changed. I mean, first and foremost, it has to be the work of the Spirit in us who's working to change our desires. But we also have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. I mean, like I said, when when I felt that challenge, and I honestly felt like it was coming from God in many ways, was say, hey, stop spending so much time on this. Nothing wrong with playing chess for for many people, but for me, it had become this kind of activity where I was just spending way too much time focusing on it. And and honestly, my desire changed over time to play less and less chess and and uh, and it was helpful. But, you know, I think so many times we baptize desires and we think desire is the ultimate thing that mm-hmm. we have in life. Uh, our friend John Mark Comer over at, uh, at Bridgetown out in Portland, I say our friend because a lot of people on CSF have listened to his podcast, him and Mark Sayers' podcast, uh, This Cultural Moment. If you haven't listened to it, phenomenal podcast on understanding where we're at culturally. It's just too short seasons. I think it's 10 episodes in total. But one of the things John Mark Comer says about desire, and I love this, uh, I heard John Tyson actually recently quote him on this, where he said, our strongest desire is not necessarily our deepest desire. In other words, that you know, your desires sometimes need to die. You, just because you have a desire doesn't mean, oh, well, I've got to live into this to be my true self. You know, this, this idea of the authentic self, to be authentic, I've just got to mm-hmm. live out whatever desires within me. But sometimes our desires just need to die. They, they need to go away. And that our strongest desires and our deepest desire. I had a friend who who committed adultery. He had an affair, and I remember. I still remember where I was when when I picked up the phone and called him, and and he said, "Hey, I've cheated on my wife with someone at work. Uh, my my mm-hmm. desires kind of overtook me." Yet his deeper desire and why he was calling me, he was upset. He was you know just kind of in this very tough situation because he's like, "My deeper desires. I want to stay with my wife. I want to stay with my family, my kids." But yet he had found himself in this moment where he had the strong desire, and, and he went with that rather than saying, "My deeper desire, the life giving desire." Yeah. And you got to wonder kind of in those moments where, where he's alone, you know, who, who was he thinking about? Was he thinking about the integrity of his marriage? Was he thinking about this other woman? Um, we know what the desires of the spirit are. Paul tells us, and he says, you know, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, lovely, admirable. These are the desires of the spirit. Mm-hmm. Think about those. That's mm-hmm. what he says. Think about those things. And what happens in the imagination is just incredibly important to, to shaping our hearts uh, which is essential to to shaping our actions. Yeah, we think about thinking as just this kind of the way you do a math problem. Hey, two mm-hmm. plus two, well, I think about that and that's four. But there is a sense in which our thinking, when we repeatedly think on something, we're meditating on it. Mm-hmm. We're meditating on yep. it. We're letting our minds feed on it. And so when you you binge watch Netflix, I, there's just something about your mind you just feel bad about after yeah, you, of course. You, you're doing that because essentially what you're doing is you're meditating. You're not you know closing your eyes, crossing your legs, or you know folding your hands or whatever in, in some classical meditation sense. And there is Christian meditation for sure. That's not just an Eastern religion 
intelligence phenomenon, but you, your mind just winds up getting absorbed with these things and it's mm-hmm. set in a certain kind of direction. It's, it's why I took Facebook off my phone. Yeah. It was because I was just like, I, I just find myself, I, and I didn't even think I went to it all that much, but I was like, I just don't want this because I don't want my mind meditating on, oh, what's the latest social update, that sort of thing. I wanted to live by the spirit and not meditate on, on those sorts of things. Yeah, and, and if you need proof of this, I mean, just go binge watch a Netflix. You know, you hear people say, oh, I just want to do something mindless so I can relax. Nobody is ever more relaxed after watching three or four or 10 hours of Netflix or scrolling through Twitter or Facebook for two hours. You're never more relaxed. You never find life. You never find peace there. Interestingly, one of the most peaceful and life-giving things is actually dwelling and meditating and activating your mind, but activating it and orienting it to the right direction, the source of life and life and peace. There's no mindless action. Well, CJ, you mentioned earlier, kind of sticking with the first part of this chapter, and that's that's great. We can we can certainly we can go back and forth all throughout this chapter, but I do want to hit something because I think it's uh, if you read these first, uh, you can break down Romans eight in a lot of different ways. But mm-hmm. I think if you take the first seventeen verses and you can look, and, and there's at least six blessings. So we're in this new covenant, you know. The, the old uh, the old covenant that was given to uh, first to Abraham then to Moses uh, we're not under this these oh, the older covenant the, the mosaic covenant if you will we are now under this new covenant that's come through Christ and there's at least six blessings of this new covenant that come that Paul hits and they there it's so again it's it you just get punched so quickly the punches just keep coming one after the other uh, you you don't even you don't even realize where where one punch uh, begins and the other the other starts and so uh, uh, so what what we have here in these six covenants? I just want to hit these really quickly. Of the, or six the six blessings of the new covenant is one uh, justification. In verse one, you see that we are made in right standing, and, and justification is a legal term. It basically means that in, in a legal sense, we are no longer guilty. That that Christ has taken the guilt of our sin, and we are declared not guilty in Him. There's other ways of describing what Jesus did, and, and some people will argue about that. Obviously, I would never ever say that justification is not, uh, you have to talk about justification when you talk about it, but Mm -hmm. it's not the only category of describing what happened on the cross. But justification is the one Paul hits here in verse one. Uh, Versus the second second blessing that we have is obedience. So the first blessing we have is justification. Second blessing that we have is obedience, that we have been given this blessing of obedience. You know, Paul says, listen, you don't have to follow the flesh. You can follow the spirit. One of the great, one of the great uh, insights that John Wesley had uh, was that for me, at least John Wesley is one who taught me this, and certainly many, many other people have gotten this, is that when you become a Christian, it's not it's not that you will sin no longer, because we know that. We know mm-hmm. that uh, that Christians still struggle with sin, uh, you know, in, in, from time to time, and, and maybe even daily. I mean, our Lord mm-hmm. says even our daily prayers to to forgive us our sins. Mm-hmm. But but here's the key distinction that Wesley made. It's it's not that we will never sin. It's that we don't have to sin. Yeah. That we've been given this blessing of obedience. The third blessing I would I would want to make sure that we see in here, verses nine and ten, is that we have the Holy Spirit. We have this indwelling blessing. You know, before that the Israelites had God kind of out there and kind of leading them from afar, a cloud by day or a fire by night. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit that's given. 
this is something that people had hungered. That kind of indwelling intimacy that we have with God is an incredible, incredible blessing in the new covenant that other people didn't. The the fourth one quickly is resurrection. We have in verse 11, you see that we've got this, this blessing of life unending that's given to us and that uh, even though our body in this world has fallen now, there is a new life coming in the resurrection. Uh, the, the fifth one is quickly is adoption. Verses 14 through 16, talking about this adoption into life with Jesus. I absolutely love the imagery of being co-heirs with Christ, that the inheritance that is Jesus. I don't know if any of you all, I know when my parents deceased, there was there was things that was given to me, money and whatnot, but that the inheritance that is coming, that is coming to Christ is, is in some ways, some of those blessings are coming to us. It's a, it's an absolutely incredible and radical passage. We could we could do a whole podcast on itself, mm-hmm. but, but we've been adopted. We have this family, we have this belonging. And then lastly, I would hit his inheritance, that, that we have an inheritance that's given to us, that we have these spiritual blessings, both for this world and for the next world. And we can get into how those two worlds overlap, that we live in a, a, a now and not yet kind of, kind of setting. But justification, obedience, indwelling, resurrection, adoption, inheritance. These are six incredible blessings that, that we have uh, amongst others. But those are six clear ones that we see in this passage. Yeah, and, and just the last thing I see from this section is just a really strange word for me, one that I wasn't expecting here is just obligation. And I think especially in light of discussions about not having to sin, this idea of freedom, what does it mean to be free as a, as a Christian? And then Paul throws in a word like, no, you're, you're set free so that you can fulfill an obligation. Uh, and a metaphor I like to think is that a lot of times we think of the freedom of Christ as kind of a fish being freed you know, from the water. Whereas I think the more accurate way of, of looking at it is, mm-hmm. no, we're freed from the hook. So mm-hmm. we can go back into the water and we can swim as fish. You know, a fish has an obligation to swim in water. And as soon as it doesn't, it dies. Um, and so I think this understanding of obligation as you have to live rightly to to live, right? Christ has set you free so that you can get more and more life and he is willing to pump that into you. But the way that that happens is by opening yourself to the spirit and obligation to God and yourself to allow him to fill more and more of your life. Yeah, well, I think what you're hitting at here, why people bristle at, at using the term obligation, Paul doesn't bristle at it because yep. Paul exactly sees things. He, and maybe even as being around a lot of fishermen, he might've actually even <laughs> thought of that exact analogy, although I don't know about hooks, maybe it was a net that they were freed from. But, you know, I think what we wrestle with is we hear obligation and we hear, oh, wait a minute, if I have an obligation, that means I, I can't just simply do what I want. Right. And so we hear that, you know, obligation, Paul is saying, hey, listen, you've been freed in the spirit. You have been given life. You, you're not on the, the law side of, of flesh and the law. And, and what that brings about is death. You've been given life, but life to live as God meant for you to live. Yeah. And, and that is an obligation we have. It's an obligation to God, one, because he has saved us. It's not, we don't do it so that he will save us. We do it out of a sense of like, man, I'm so, I'm just incredibly thankful for all that he's done. But it's also in some sense an obligation to ourselves. If we want to live as the people we were meant to live mm-hmm. as, uh, you know, it's like, hey, do, do what's right. You know, do, do what's right here. Follow God's, follow, follow God's law in, in the sense of, uh, you know, live in, live in step with the Spirit. Yep. Yep. I agree. Well, CJ, let's move into this next section. We were talking a little bit about the first 17 verses. Let's, let's jump into, in verse 18, Paul takes a certain term where he starts talking about sufferings, where he says, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that that will be revealed in us. And he talks about a lot of different sufferings throughout the rest of this chapter. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think uh, an appropriate theology of suffering is really essential to understanding and living 
through the Christian life. You might read verse 18 and think that sufferings and glory are somehow just radically separate. Um, and I think what he does there is, is talk about our, our sufferings. He, he unites the two, I think, through the rest of this chapter. Uh, and I think he has that kind of highest moment where he, he says that he, he hopes that, you know, if we share in Christ's sufferings, we'll share in Christ's glory. And I think what, while he's contrasting sufferings with glory, and that in glory, we won't be actively suffering, though we might bear the marks of it the same way that Jesus did, um, that Jesus set up a model for us of suffering so that when we do suffer, that is actually the path toward glory. I mean, Christ promised blessings to those who suffer, uh, those who are persecuted for him. And then, and I think it, uh, a really practical way, we are called to suffer literally every day. Now, that doesn't mean you have to go get martyred, literally, though you might, that might be one of your callings later in life if you go to another country where uh, being a Christian makes you an enemy of kind of the secular authorities. Um, but every day we're called to suffer. I mean, we're, we're called to mortify our own sin. We're called to nail our sin to the cross every day and to deny ourselves and pick up our cross and follow Christ. That is a joyful thing to do on the back half of it, but it's not always a pleasant thing to do on the front half of it. And that our, our day-to-day experience of achieving the glory that Christ has promised us might feel a lot like suffering. And so, I get worried when we pit suffering against glory completely, we end up kind of in this Job situation where we end up wondering, okay, God must hate us if, if, we're, if we're suffering mm-hmm. and we end up cursing him. We become Job's friends. Um, and I don't think that that's what we see in the New Testament. I think we see this, this moment where suffering and glory kiss and that the pathway forward promised to us is mm-hmm. one of suffering. Mm, I like that phrase, suffering, glory, kiss. But, you know, I think we live in an age of feeling. I mean, I think that's one mm-hmm. of the the dominant uh, dominant uh, parts of our culture is that we think that feelings rule all. And, you know, I know there was a conversation recently where some guys were talking to Blake Morris and, and they said, hey, Blake, you know, one of our staff members, he said, hey, I, I see all these people and they're feeling it in worship. They're raising their mm-hmm. hands and, and they just really seem to be into it. And I don't feel it. But does that mean I don't love God? It's like no, I, that doesn't mean yeah. you don't love God. Maybe you just had a bad taco the night before. Yeah, you know? or yeah, or or better. You know, I, I think a lot of times the people who don't feel God in history are the people who end up having been the most like Christ. Mother Teresa, for example, she yeah. didn't feel God for decades. Yeah. yeah, decades. Yeah, Paul had a thorn in his flesh for his his entire life. You yeah, know, that the feelings. Yeah, I think once we can, once we think suffering and feeling bad or not feeling um, super happy about. Jesus all the time means that, you know, we're, we're somehow not moving toward glory is really dangerous. Yeah, that, that's great. Yeah. And that's why I bring up this whole thing. Cause yeah, if you're feeling bad feelings or you're feeling, you're feeling the bad feeling of not feeling anything at all. Right. And in an age of feelings, that's, that's kind of a curse. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, but I want to talk about, speaking of feelings, I want to talk about these, uh, I think there's at least three groanings. I think yeah. we can kind of tie together some of this uh, middle part of the chapter under this heading of three groanings. And it's interesting that, you know, in, it's kind of, if you look through those verses 19 through 27, uh, but these these three groanings that get mentioned, first it talks about the physical world groaning, creation is groaning. It's that creation, though, though um, not totally wrecked by, you know, what we talked about last week, Genesis mm-hmm. 3, not completely wrecked. There is certainly echoes of Eden about. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is still a, there's still, sin has had its mark on our world and yeah. creation just even the physical world longs for longs for redemption yeah god and, cursed the ground in, in genesis 3 that's right you know i mean and even 
just as our bodies, since our bodies are part of that mm-hmm. world. You know, mm-hmm. I know a lot of times people make, uh, you know, they say, hey, well, I, I was, I have certain feelings. I was just born a certain way mm-hmm. or whatever. And I go, well, I mean, there's a lot of parts of our world that that are off. Uh, you know, earthquakes happen, hurricanes yeah. happen, those sorts of things. I take it that those things are a part of the fall. And, you know, I think even our bodies, uh, you know, our bodies, uh, the biochemical, you know, parts of our bodies, the physical parts of our bodies, those can be off as well. That That is part of creation that groans for redemption as well. But that's that's the first groaning, the, the creation groaning. The second one is the believer groans. The believer wants something more. It, you know, there's this talk of living to hope, wanting wanting the, the full expression of sonship to feel just fully the adoption as sons into Christ. So we're hoping for more. And then that last part is that the spirit groans. The spirit groans for us, you know, to say, hey, we, I'm going to intercede on your behalf because the spirit Spirit wants more of God. It wants more of the Father's love in us, more of us realizing we have the indwelling Christ there, that there is in all three of these, could the creation wants more of God's presence and perfection. The believer wants more of God, and the Spirit wants this for us, that there is this groaning of wanting more and more and more. Yeah, and the reason we groan, just kind of bring it full circle, is because we suffer. You know, mm-hmm. the world is suffering, mm-hmm. actively suffering. I mean, we see how many how many people died just, you know, not too long ago from another massive tsunami in the East. Uh, we are suffering, the creation suffering, we are suffering. So we are groaning. Paul says later, we are actively being killed, sent like sheep to the slaughter. And then right after that, he says, yet yeah, we're more than conquerors. Somehow, despite being killed, we're still groaning for this glory. Yeah, and, but let's be clear here. One of the things that, one of the words that, that I think we need to, that may sum some of this up and tie it together is transformation. Yeah. Is that you know, what's being grown for is the creation wants mm-hmm. to f- experience the full transformation. Mm-hmm. Believers have started. Once we've been justified in Christ, there has been a transformation. The transformation has started. There is a mm-hmm. real, uh, there's been a legal transformation. Mm-hmm. You are no longer guilty. You have now been declared innocent, but there is still more transformation needs to happen. You know, the big Christian term for that is sanctification. But so much, my my wife is just in. A, she's in this book study right now. Her and a few friends are reading this book, and actually, I'm reading it with the, the husbands. It's a book called uh, the, "The Spirit of the Disciplines" by Dallas Willard. And my wife came up. The girls were meeting together. She comes upstairs and she said, "Man, honestly, uh, I feel like in some ways I've been lied to uh, by other things I've read and just things I've heard a lot in my life through uh, a lot of different churches, a lot of different pastors. Just kind of the Christian world tends to emphasize uh, you know, sa- uh, being saved. You know, hey, I, I thought I thought the Christian life was just about getting my sins forgiven. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that it was about transformation. There's a great book out there called The Ragamuffin Gospel that that has been so influential in so many people's lives. And, and the thing I love about The Ragamuffin Gospel is that it hits and hits beautifully that God loves broken people. Mm-hmm. God loves broken people. He meets them where they are in their filth, in their brokenness, in their shame, and he loves them as they are ragamuffins. But what I really dislike about the book is that it's only the first half. Yeah. It never gets on to the second half of transformation, which is which is deeply, deeply sad and troublesome to me because then people just go, well, I suppose I just live my life as a, as a broken individual who's riddled with sin and all these other things in their lives for the rest of my life. And I just kind of sit here and wait in my brokenness until heaven happens. And what Paul is saying here is that the new age has already come, yeah. that the healing of the, the full transformation, that full, full, full transformation may not happen until, until Christ does come back. And apparently it doesn't happen for all of creation. But for, for a lot of people reading church history and reading the lives of saints, they've said, hey, you know what? If we give ourselves over to God, the, a lot of that healing and wholeness can happen here. We don't live in a Humpty Dumpty world mm-hmm. where all the king's horses, all the king's men can't put us back together again. Jesus is saying, I'm better than the king's men and all the king's horses. I am the king and I can put you back together again. 
and I can do it starting now. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when we start asking, you know, what is, what is Jesus trying to save us from? And I think we have to remember that first part, justification, being set right. But then we have to remember the second part. What does it mean to be set right before God and still have a soul which we actively leave in hell? Mm-hmm. Right? Hell is, is a place we go, sure, but it's also a quality of soul. Just like the, the kingdom is now, it's within you when you become more like Christ and you have eternal life now that you know Christ. Well, similarly, that moment that you decide transformation is optional or just extra or something that you don't have to do, you're just staying in a state which is going to be experientially hell for you. Well, let's move on to this last bit of the chapter, these last few verses. I know there's a word in there that inevitably always brings up uh, debate, and it's that word. He talks about predestination some, and that in and of itself is a whole other topic. Uh, if you want, you can go on YouTube. I think there's clips of, if you want to see me at, gosh, how old was I? 28. 13. Yeah, I looked young. I was probably, I was actually probably about 30 in that. I actually was 30 in that video, but I know there's clips all over YouTube of me when I hosted a Calvinism debate between two professors from Asbury, two professors from uh, Southern Seminary, and they just kind of debated back and forth, and I was the moderator, and it was a lot of fun. We had a thousand people show up to this event. It was a pretty cool night, but anyway, let me just hit this about predestination of what he is not talking about. One, when you read that passage, he is not talking about individual salvation there. Paul's talking about some bigger things about how God has worked through salvation history. One, initially working through the people of Israel and saying, I'm going to do something special through them because through them, I'm going to show up on the scene as a person, flesh and blood in the world, and I'm going to be an, an Israelite. Um, but but now what he's talking about is what, what God is doing for a group of people through the church. What has been predestined, what was set before time began was that God knew, hey, humanity is going to mess this up. Uh, and here's, here's going to be the plan. What the, the predestined plan was that God would save people, me, you, all of us, the, the whole church, he's going to save us through Christ. It's not about into some individuals being out, some individuals being in. And the, the number one thing I would just encourage, and you can debate different texts and pull those things out, but here's the thing I would say is that you have to realize when you look at the history of understanding the text about predestination, the overwhelming majority of people who have ever read the Bible, who have ever studied theology, who have ever, get, just the day-to-day people who have given their lives to Jesus have not read these mm-hmm. verses in terms of being like kind of a Calvinist understanding, mm-hmm. a reformed, uh, you know, a lot of reformed, your, your, uh, you know, some of your, a lot of your Presbyterian churches. And it's not to say they're, they're wholly wrong. I think I, there are many pastors within that tradition. Tim Keller would be, would be one that I deeply respect and, and, and find so much nourishment from. However, on this point about individual predestination, some people predestined for heaven, you know, uh, probably linked to that. Other people predestined for hell. Uh, I, they're just wrong. And, and you go through the Catholic church, they don't believe this. You go through the Orthodox church, the Eastern Orthodox church. They don't believe that. Many, 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 many Protestants don't believe this. So it is a very, very small segment of people who read the Bible, who study this, who pray through it, who live through it, and and they believe that, you know, this is about individual predestination. So on that score, it's a minority report and Mm -hmm. they they are simply wrong. Yeah, I agree. But this is probably not the thing you need to focus a ton on in group. I mean, if it comes up, there's a few things Mm -hmm. that we've talked about that could be helpful. And there's a lot more that can be said on the topic, but that's probably not where you want to land the plane of your group, just because there is so much gold here about what life with the Spirit looks like. And life with the Spirit, I think, is is finished off in this chapter in a a wonderful way, a way that's supposed to to give you a lot Mm -hmm. of heart in, in being a Christian. I think after what can sound sometimes like a daunting task of living in the spirit of worrying maybe that 
that you're going to be in the flesh and that you won't be able to please God or, or worrying that you're going to be suffering. Paul ends with just this really, really loud roar. There is nothing that is going to separate you from God. Mm-hmm. All right. It's not angels. It's not demons. It is nothing. He goes through the litany of things that you might worry about. Hey, if I don't do this well, God's not going to love me. Maybe I won't be a Christian. Maybe I'll end up going to hell. That is not the Christian life. Christ came to remove the fear of death from us. And even in the midst of the suffering, even in the midst of those times of worry, don't ever think that God has abandoned you. Those who he came to seek and those who he has found, he is not going to lose. Right? Unless you go turn and tail running from him, he's not going to go turning tail running from you. Um, so I think this is just a wonderful piece of hope that he ends this yeah, chapter with. As, as long as we just continue to say, Lord, I want to be yours. It's not to say your life will be sinless. Again, Jesus tells us each day, pray, you know, Lord, for, you know, Father, forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who, you know, trespass who sin against us. I mean, so it's not to say you have to live a perfect life, but but it is simply to say, yeah, as long as you keep turning to Jesus, um, and again, you will do that very imperfectly, but as long as you keep turning to Jesus in a consistent way, you're there. There's nothing outside of you. There's no, no, no power. No one can rip you from that. And it is, it's a beautiful assurance. And just, it reminds me of that passage even earlier in the chapter about, man, we, we can now approach God. He is our father. He, he is our Abba. Uh, just such a beautiful, tender, tender term that that I love. You know, and I would say, CJ, as we wrap up this podcast, one of the things I want to make sure, because there's just so many little dives and nooks and crannies and corners in this in this, uh, in this this uh, chapter. I mean, and, and not even little crooks. And cr- I mean, this is, uh, this is magisterial. I mean, this is the Grand Canyon. This is, you know, wonders of the world. I mean, I mean, this is one of the richest chapters in the mm-hmm. entire Bible. You could read it every day for the rest of your life and still find rich, rich, deep nourishment here. But I I would want to make sure that we see an overarching, one of the overarching themes when I look at this is that we have the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit is the life inside of us. We do not try to have our lives transformed by our own moral muscles. I mean, Pelagius was one of the the, uh, early church heretics that basically said, hey, listen, if you just kind of try to decide to honor God and really work hard at it, then, then you can do it. And I'm not saying that you don't work hard. The opposite of grace is not uh, is works, not effort. But but I am saying that you know what the Holy Spirit is the one who transforms us. He is the power. He is the life inside of us, and we need to see that. We need to see that huge gift um, for what it is. I mean, for who it is. That that is a gift. You got a closing thought? No, I think that's great. I think you covered it really well. Yeah, it's great. I hope this, uh, it's so much stuff to cover. You'll have to figure out what, what works and what the people in your group need to hear. I hope it's a great time. 